Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our last lesson, we learned that God revealed to John the events that will lead up to Christ's return. These are recorded in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. However, Revelation does not specifically mention an event known as the rapture, which is most often seen as a separate event to Christ's second coming. The rapture is when Jesus Christ removes the church from the earth. At that time, those who believe in Jesus and who are still alive will be caught up from the earth to be with him in the clouds, their bodies being changed into immortal, glorious bodies in the twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there's much debate as to when the rapture will occur. Many people hold to a pre-trib view of the rapture, which means that believers will be caught up to Christ pre or before the seven years of tribulation. However, there are also those who think that the rapture may occur mid-trib, meaning that the church will depart at the midpoint of those last seven years of suffering, just before the time of greatest misery. Irrespective of when this event occurs, though, it's worth noting that there will be believers on earth during these final years before Christ's second coming. Some of these holy people will be Jews who will have come to accept Jesus as their Messiah, and some will be of Gentile heritage, for there will be people come to believe in Jesus even after the church is gone. The period, known as the Tribulation, spans the final seven years before Christ's return. During this time, God will deal with his people Israel and pour out his judgment on the unbelieving world. Those who believe in Jesus have a great hope that we will not experience this wrath of God poured out because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 promises that God has not destined us for wrath but rather to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The tribulation is also referred to by other names in scripture. In several places, it's called the day of the Lord. And according to Isaiah 13 verse 9, it will be when God's wrath and his fierce anger will be emptied out on the world and the rebellious people who dwell in it. Joel 1 verse 15 declares that this period of time known as the day of the Lord will be a time of destruction. And even Moses in Deuteronomy 4.30 warned of a great time of suffering in the later days, which would cause the Jews especially to return to their God and obey his voice. When Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 about God's plan for his people, the Jews, his words outlined a prophetic clock that would affect the Jewish people. When we studied Daniel, we saw the prophecy fulfilled up until the time of Christ's crucifixion, leaving seven more years still to be realized. 
After the rise of the church, it seems that Israel's prophecy clock was paused while they were scattered from the promised land. But now they've returned to it. It is believed that the clock will resume for Israel, perhaps when the church is raptured, leading to the last seven years. Over the course of these final years, a certain global leader will rise to power and difficulties will increase until, as God told Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, there will be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. However, God also promised Daniel that his people would be delivered and those who trust in the Lord Jesus, whose names are written in his book of life, will be saved. Daniel's prophecies also reveal some of the actions of an individual we know as the Antichrist, that global ruler who will rise to power in the final seven years. John put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, saying, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So in a sense, we've been living in the last hour since the first coming of Christ, and there have been many who've operated in the same spirit, but the Antichrist is coming. Of course, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the church will not be on earth to see these final seven years, and like John, will be with the Lord in heaven to see the opening of the scroll and the breaking of its seals. Those who have a mid-trib view of Revelation believe that we will be here for some of these events. But irrespective of how things eventually play out, we can be sure that Christ will be with us and that we will be safe in his care no matter what happens here on earth. We'll understand more of this in the weeks to come as we look at these next chapters, but we need to understand that prophecy is often made up of different elements, and there is sometimes a partial fulfillment of a prophecy as a foreshadowing of the final event spoken of in God's Word. Additionally, Prophecy is made up of both foretelling and forthtelling, and we'll see both of these elements in the upcoming chapters. You see, there'll be times when God will foretell the future, and he'll reveal what will happen according to his plan. But there will also be times that we will recognize an element of forthtelling in what John relates. In other words, there will be a place where God reveals both his character and his nature to encourage us in every generation. So an example of forthtelling would be what we already know from Revelation 4, that God is on his throne and that it is Christ who opens up seal after seal. And we're encouraged knowing that he is in control, no matter how chaotic things may seem on earth. It will also be important for us to understand that the things that John sees will not always be consecutive. In other words, the proceedings don't necessarily follow a strict order because there will be times that God will interject other information to encourage John and us. 
In the next few chapters, God will speak of three different sets of events that take place during the tribulation, which are symbolized by three sets of items, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of God's wrath. All three of these groups are seen to be end-time judgments from God. Together, these seals, trumpets, and bowls comprise what is called the great day of God's wrath to judge all those who reject God. And in each of these groups, the first four will reveal things that will be visible on earth, followed by three events that, by contrast, are the revelation of God's acts in the spiritual realm. We're going to cover this in greater detail as we go, but many Bible scholars think of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as all fitting inside one another. In this view, the seven seals are opened over the entire course of the final seven years, and they conclude with the return of Jesus Christ to reign. Within the seventh seal, though, the seven trumpets are blown. These two end with the victorious return of Christ. And it is during the last of those trumpet judgments, as Christ comes to earth to conclude the period of the tribulation, that all of the seven bowls of God's wrath are quickly poured out on the earth. We'll revisit this idea several times throughout the study, and it'll become even clearer as we progress in the text. But for now, let's look in chapter 6, where we see Jesus begin to break open the seven seals that are upon the scroll, causing history to unfold before John's eyes. Verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So as Christ begins to break open the seals in the throne room of heaven, the focus shifts from what is going on there to what is happening on the earth. As each of the first four seals are broken, a different living creature around the throne calls forth and a particular horse and rider ride out across the earth. We have to remember that these horses and riders are symbolic and they represent events that will take place leading up to Christ's return. The first horseman is one of conquest and very significantly this occupation of the world will be peaceful for notice the rider carries an empty bow. No arrows are mentioned. Some have wondered if this first rider on the white horse is perhaps a symbol of the coming Christ, for Jesus is said to return riding a white horse in Revelation 19, but this is not indicated in the text. Since we are specifically told in the Greek text that the crown the rider is given is not the same as the crown that Christ wears in Revelation 19. Also, don't forget, Christ is the one opening the seals in heaven at this point. So perhaps this rider represents the peaceful conquest of the nations 
by a one-world government ruled over by the Antichrist, who is controlled by Satan and who is opposed to Christ and his people. According to Daniel, this individual will appear in the last seven years prior to Christ's return and will initially come as a peacemaker. However, at the halfway point of the tribulation, he will set up something that both Daniel and Jesus refer to as the abomination that causes desolation in Jerusalem. We'll learn more of this in future chapters of Revelation, but an abomination that causes desolation is really a disgraceful thing that causes great misery and despair for God's people. The Apostle Paul also gave us some insight into the workings of the world leader known as the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-4. to 4. Calling the Antichrist the man of lawlessness, who is doomed to destruction, Paul warned that this leader will oppose God, eventually exalting himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. We'll see more about the fulfillment of all of that when we get to Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 to 15. Let's see what happens as Jesus allows God's plan to unfold on the earth with the opening of the next seal. Verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. The colour red often has a strong association with terror and with death in scripture. For example, later on in John's vision, we'll see the appearance of the red dragon, which is also said to be this fiery red colour. The function of this horseman is to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. In other words, there was peace, but now it's gone. The empty bow has been exchanged for a sword. With the disintegration of all human relationships, people begin to turn against one another, and the world seems to be churning with bitterness and hate. In John's day, the weapon of choice was the sword, and so he uses what he was familiar with to communicate what he saw. However, notice here that this rider is given a large sword or a great sword. This is no ordinary weapon. This is a powerful weapon of destruction. The black horse and rider appear next in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This rider holds scales symbolic of trade in his hand and John hears a warning of famine. 
In John's day, a quart of wheat was enough for just one person for a day. And so this speaks of a time when a whole day's pay would be required to feed just one person, to say nothing of their children or dependents. The only way to feed a family would be to switch over to barley, which was a cheaper, less nutritious grain that was frequently used to feed animals. And even so, a whole day's wage would be required to buy barely enough barley to feed a small family. There's something here we should notice, however, for the oil and the wine are not damaged. And here we see a picture of famine set alongside luxury where the items enjoyed by the rich will be protected, allowing them to continue to enjoy their lifestyle. For the ordinary people, however, this scarcity of food leads to rationing, which is revealed in the symbol of the scales. We will see later on that likely in response to the famine and the need for food rationing, the Antichrist, like many dictators before him, will insist on loyalty being shown before food is given. But we must wait until chapter 13 to learn more about that. As the fourth seal is opened in heaven, verse 7 speaks of the final horse and rider to come upon the earth. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The fourth rider, Death, is seated on a pale horse. Appropriately, this horse is described in this way as having the same pale tone of a dead body. Notice how Death has Hades following on his heels. Death takes the body and Hades takes the soul. Though it might seem strange to say, this should be a great encouragement to Christ followers because evidently this is something that only affects the people of the earth, those who do not believe in Jesus. How can we be sure of that? Well, as believers, our destination upon death is not Hades. No, those who trust in Jesus are marked for heaven, not for hell. John declares of these two that they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill in these various ways. So either a quarter of the globe or 25% of the world's population will perish. In ancient times, it was common occurrence that periods of peace would be quickly followed by strife, famine and death. And thus, John is using a traditional picture of what happens when God sends his wrath upon disobedient people. For despite what the ungodly think, the truth is that no man or nation can escape the consequences of their sin in the end. God will judge them. Perhaps the Lord's mercy is really seen in the fact that only a quarter of the earth or a quarter of the world's population are affected by all of this. As the first four seals have been broken, much has occurred on the earth and the tribulation John has described follows a very similar pattern to what Christ himself foretold in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. 
Matthew gives an account of Jesus being asked about the sign of his coming and the signs of the end of the age, to which Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus also warned of famines and wars and death, even earthquakes. And yet he tells us not to be alarmed because these things must happen as a prelude to his return. He refers to them as the beginning of birth pains, and any mother can tell you that birth pains, no matter how long or short the labor, do have a beginning, a middle of sorts, and an end. Although giving birth is a painful process, it eventually brings incredible joy at the birth of new life. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 9, as the fifth seal is opened, God gives John a vision of the spiritual realm and of heaven. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. As we see the souls of those who had been slain for their faith in Jesus, we're told that their souls are underneath the altar in heaven. To make sense of this, we must understand that the throne room of heaven was the blueprint for the tabernacle and the temple on earth. Those Old Testament places of worship were both constructed after the pattern of the holy things that already existed in heaven. Here, John sees the altar of heaven and the souls of those who'd been slain for their devotion to Jesus beneath it. This is a picture that's taken directly from the sacrificial ritual of the earthly temple. You see, John knew that the most sacred part of any sacrifice was the blood. The blood was regarded as being the life and the life belonged to God. When the priests in the earthly temple made an offering, the blood was poured at the foot of the altar, and it seems that this is what is in John's mind as he describes what he sees. For the souls of the martyrs are beneath the altar, which is to say their lifeblood has been poured out as an offering to God. In verse 10, they ask how long it'll be until God will judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge their blood. We know that phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, is a reference to all those who don't believe in Jesus, but who've chosen to follow the Antichrist and the rebellious pattern of the world. And so it seems obvious that the followers of the Antichrist are in fact the ones responsible for the martyrs' deaths. 
Each of the martyrs, though, was given a white robe to wear, denoting their purity, and they were encouraged to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. There are several things about what John saw that we can't miss. As the martyrs rested in the presence of God, they did so in patient expectation of the fact that God is just. Vengeance is his. Secondly, they're not alone. They had to wait in peace a little longer for their number was not yet complete. This not only reveals that some believers in Christ will be on earth at the time of the fifth seal and that still more would be martyred, but it also proves that God knows the exact number of those who will give their lives for the sake of the gospel. God knows everything that we face. It's all part of his plan. And we can trust in his word in Psalm 116 verse 15 that declares, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his people. The Lord cares very much about each one of us. We are precious to him and he has not forgotten us no matter what happens. Like pains endured by a woman in labor, this too shall pass because Jesus also promised in Matthew 24 that in those last days, though there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again, for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. As the tribulation ends and the seven years of suffering draw to a close, John sees the sixth seal being opened in Revelation 6 verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. As the sixth seal is opened, chaos ensues in nature and catastrophic events unfold on the earth and in the sky. A great earthquake shook the world and there were accompanying signs in the heavens. The sun darkened, the moon turned red, and there were what appeared to be meteor showers in the sky that fell so rapidly they seemed to be like fruit, blown off a tree by a strong wind. Then the sky as we know it disappeared as if it had been rolled up like a piece of parchment. Not only that, but every mountain and island was shifted from its original place. How similar this is to what Jesus told us would happen in Matthew 24 verses 29 to 30. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Lord is about to return to earth in victory. Now, you would expect that all this distress would cause the people of the earth to finally turn to the Lord and cry out to him for mercy. But what do they do? Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone's slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Regardless of their station in life, those who do not follow Christ are overcome with terror. But rather than call out to the Lord as they could still do, like sinful Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they hide from the Lord. Preferring death over facing him, they appeal to the earth as if that would help them, crying, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. These verses are extremely important because as the disobedient hide from God, they know that he reigns, that he sits enthroned. They also know that the wrath of the Lamb has come and that this is the great day of wrath. This is the same wrath that 1 Thessalonians promises that Jesus will deliver Christ followers from. Can you imagine how terrible it must have been for John to see all of this How overwhelmed he must have felt because of the intensity of the vision. When we begin chapter 7 next lesson, we'll see God draw John's mind away to more encouraging things. At this key point, he will insert another piece of the revelation as a way of giving John and us the strength to endure the vision. In the meantime, as those who follow Christ, We can hold to the fact that God knows who belongs to him. He knows the plans that he has for each one of us, and their plans not for wrath and judgment, but for redemption and salvation, to give us a future with him in heaven. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.